If you have your Bible with you, please open up to Genesis chapter 3. I will begin reading in verse 14. Genesis 3, 14. The Lord God said to the serpent. Now that's a way to start a Sunday morning right there. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. More than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat of the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. Father, just help us through this. Walk us through these curses, and help us to see why they're here, what they're here for, but especially, Lord, to see the blessing within. In Jesus' name, amen. Whoever's got sound, there's a weird little hum behind me. Just saying. This morning I thought we could use a lighter, gentler approach to Bible study, so uh, let's talk curses. (laughs) How do you do this? (laughs) Open up to talk about curses on a Sunday morning. Well... We're going to do that. And whoever's got sound, I still have a little hum behind me that's driving me nuts. This is my curse today. Hum, hum. Yeah, they're probably upstairs. I don't know, we're outside having a smoke or something. I'm kidding. No, they wouldn't be doing that, I'm sure. We all know what it means to be tied up in knots. Right? To be in a pickle, in a stew, on pins and needles, sweating bullets. Phrases like these, they speak of tension, or fear, or anxiety, and dread. And midweek, as we were studying through Genesis chapter 3, we learned that the first sense of fear, anxiety, and dread in all history was felt as, note this, verse 8 of chapter 3, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That was the first time man felt fear. That's tragic. That the first time Adam, first time Eve would feel dread would be at the presence of their Creator. That day should have been a blessing. That day should have been a a meeting, a joining together, a walking with the Lord in the garden. But the day that should have been a blessing in His presence ended in curses. And these curses are real. 
They are ongoing. They affect the planet today just as they did when they were first spoken. In fact, what is the single greatest source of all the fear and anxiety in the world today? It's not impeachment. (laughs) The greatest source of fear is sin and the curses. And whether people believe or not, sin and the curses are the cause of all dread. It is the underlying source of all that's wrong with the world. Now, when we read the word cursed there in verse 14, let me tell you right out of the gate, it's the word arur in Hebrew, A-R-U-R, if you're taking notes, arur, and it literally means to snare, to bind, to hem in, or to render powerless to resist, specifically a penalty. To be bound up by a penalty. Hemmed in by irresistible punishment. And we live in that world. A world that is all tied up and bound by curses. The theological workbook of the Old Testament says a striking fact is that there is such a proliferation of words in Hebrew which have been generally all translated to curse. At least six words. I find that interesting. Six Hebrew words all meaning to curse. And six is the number of man in the Bible. The words are arar, or arur, as we note this morning, kalal, alak, kebab, nakab, and za'am. But the theological workbook says to group all of them together under the one general English equivalent to curse is much too superficial. The verb arar that we're looking at this morning, it's the one used twice in the passage before us. Cursed are you, and the ground is cursed. This word appears 63 times in the Hebrew Scriptures, most of which are in the passive participle. What does that mean? It means the curse is given and enforced upon the subject, either by the speaker of the curse or by the subject's own behavior. It comes upon us. So it's a, 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 we're passive in it. We're recipients of it. So it's either that which is spoken by God as we read in the passage, or that which is done by us that we receive on our own heads. It's something inescapable. And while it's the Lord God clearly giving out these ancient curses, we also recognize in these the effect of our own sin, which itself binds and ensnares us. Oh, that we could understand that. Oh, that as as younger people, we might have known that. That it is my sin choice that wraps chains around my ankles and my wrists. It's my sin failures that bring me to my knees in stocks and bonds. It's the very things that that I think look so good, that I think sound so fun. Or that I think are so necessary in my life that chain me up. Bible says, Numbers 32, 23, be sure your sin will find you out. And that is as certain as any physical law. If we choose to sin, it's going to come back and bite us or chain us. It's unrelenting. Bible says in Proverbs 29, verse 6, by transgression, an evil man is ensnared. But... The righteous sings and rejoices. So what will it be? Do you want prison? Or do you want praise? Do you want to be chained? Or do you want to rejoice? 
We have some say in the matter, especially because of what Jesus did. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I'll tell you what, in Jesus, we have been re-empowered not to have to sin. We can choose not to sin. Now, at the same time, don't miss the divine authority in these curses. God has the power and the potency and the purpose to inexorably enforce these curses. To speak these things and to bring them about for any that follow along this path. He's also the only one capable of providing the way for the binding curse of sin to be broken. You can't do that. Neither can I. But the Lord has the power. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 then says, Therefore let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. How, Lord? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter or finisher of faith. Jesus, the sin breaker, the chain breaker, the counter to all curses. Sin ravages, Jesus saves. Amen? Amen. Sin chains, Jesus sets free, right? And what's interesting to me is this word arur in the Hebrew is the exact Hebrew antonym to the word baruch, to bless. It's to curse on the one hand, but that's not God's heart. It is to bless Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, Baruch. And the one who curses you, I will curse, Arur. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Baruch. God says that to Abram. Later on, Isaac will speak to Jacob. Genesis 27, verse 29, saying, Cursed be those who curse you, Arur. And blessed be those who bless you, Baruch. This is great. For right here in the midst of the curses, we can assume, expect something. As a matter of fact, the Lord does something that no one of us would think to do. And that is He embeds blessings in the curses. This is not just a passage of the curse of sin on humanity. Though, yes, it is. But roped in and wrapped in and tied in and bound up in the midst of all these curses are remarkable blessings. How do you know that? Because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Even curses. Oh, so I should just sin for the curses so I can get the blessing. No. Do not misunderstand. The blessings come as the cursed turn their eyes upon Jesus. As the cursed reject the curses in favor of accepting the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But there is blessing here that God planned from the very beginning. Keep your eyes open for embedded blessings. Now we're going to actually deal with four separate entities this morning. All who come under the curses and the punishments. Those four entities very clearly marked are the serpent and Satan and the woman and the man. The serpent is cursed in verse 14. Satan is then cursed in verse 15. The woman in verse 16. By the way, she's not Eve yet. We call them Adam and Eve through Genesis 1 and 2. 
as they're first mentioned, they're Adam and Eve. But at this point, during the curses, prior to the curses, it's Adam and Isha. For she's called woman, for she was taken out of man. I'm going to call her Isha, for she's taken out of Ish in the Hebrew. So up to this point, she remains under the name Isha. She is not yet named Eve. That's important. We'll come back to it. But in verse 16, Isha, the woman, is cursed. And then finally, verses 17 through 19, Adam is under the curse. So let's look at these. Number one, point number one, the curse on the serpent. Verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. More than every beast of the field doesn't mean that all the animals at this point were cursed along with the serpent. All animals and all animal kind will feel the weight of the curses and come under the curse, but that comes a little bit later as the ground is cursed, as the earth is cursed. But at this point, it's specifically the serpent. And you might note that cursed are you more than all cattle should read, cursed are you out of all cattle. Cursed are you out of every beast of the field. It's a little preposition in the Hebrew. The preposition is me, M-I, and me means out of. So the serpent is called out of all the creatures on the planet to be flat out on its belly. You are going down. As I said, the animal kingdom is going to feel the weight of the curse. In fact, let's just get this out of the way. If you turn over to Romans chapter 8... Flip over there real quickly if you can. Romans chapter 8 in the New Testament. We'll pick up in verse 18 as Paul is describing the weight of the curse from the very beginning, as I said earlier, that continues to affect and impact all the world, not just humanity, animal kind, the planet itself is under curse. Verse 18 of Romans chapter 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us, to us. Stop right there just for a moment. That's the marvelous truth of walking with Jesus, is for everything negative, there's always a better positive. For every curse, there's always a blessing. For the sufferings, there is glory. And the glory will come. Oh, but but Rick, my entire life has been suffering. The glory will come. Yeah, but I've been waiting and waiting all my... I understand. The glory will come. And I've said before, we measure things by the length of our lives. God measures things by eternity. What is 60, 70, 80 years of suffering compared to an eternity of glory? You tell me. So hang with this thought. The blessings and the curses. The glory beyond even the suffering. Verse 19, Paul says, For the anxious longing of the creation... The creation there is catesis, and it's the word that literally means all created things. So the anxious longing of all created things waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that is God, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Note that it's an important concept. Creation was not subjected willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. God did that. That God saw fit in His wisdom and His glory in giving the curses 
He doesn't just curse the serpent. He doesn't just curse Satan or the woman or Adam. He curses the ground. He curses the world. He curses the poor puppy. The little kitty. The fluffy little lamb. All the animals get cursed. God, why would you do something like that? That even animal kind would be filled with a longing for the glory. Why would God allow the things He's allowed in your life to come to pass? The the sufferings. He allows them that we might long for the glory. He allows the hardship of life now that we might desire passionately life then. God is always focused on our eternal existence with Him. Our eternal condition with Him. Now, my life's been so hard. Again, I get it. But it's not about this life. Be encouraged. God is doing a mighty work. And by the way, those among us who suffer the most, I think are going to have the greater glory. I think we'll experience the more marvelous glorification. Verse 22 says, we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. So even the weight of the curse and the difficulty and the heaviness that sometimes is on us in this life, hey, if it drives hope, if it focuses our desire on Jesus, bring it on. Because it's not about this life. So back in Genesis 3, the whole creation ends up feeling the curse. But at this point, in verse 14, it's the serpent that goes down on its belly to become the danger noodle that it is today. (laughs) Apparently, the serpent moved in an upright position before. We don't know how. There's all kinds of ideas about that. Did a serpent have arms and legs and move about? Was the serpent man-like or, or human, at least in appearance? Not human, but did he look... Was it a dragon? Was it a basilisk? We, we don't know. We don't know. Ask Adam or Eve later. But we know that it was at some point upright, not down on the ground, because it got cursed to be down on the ground. And yes, I'm talking about snakes. I'm talking about every uh, creature that is of that kind that comes from that kind or is like that kind, he says, dust you will eat. You're going down. You're going to slither. Dust you will eat. And that implies this new space to the dirt existence for the serpent. And by the way, it's also a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech. Dust you will eat. Like the old bumper sticker we used to have on our cars, eat my dust. I always like that one. Especially when someone passed you. Eat my dust is the idea here because eating dust is the Hebrew idiom or euphemism for defeat. You will eat dust. Psalm 72 verse 9 of the king of Israel. Solomon wrote, let the nomads of the desert bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Be defeated. 
Or Isaiah 49 verse 23, speaking of Israel and the Messiah, God said, they will bow down to you, Messiah, with their faces to the earth and lick the dust of your feet. And you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Those set against the Lord, those in rebellion to the Lord are going to be defeated. They will lick the dust. Or Micah 7.17. Of the nations that are opposed to Israel, God said, They will lick the dust like a serpent. Like reptiles of the earth. They will come trembling out of their fortresses. To the Lord our God, they will come in dread, and they will be afraid of you. By the way, prophecy students, think about this. Oh, I, and a little, little side commercial, if I may. Let's pause for a commercial break. Tonight is Yom Teruah. It begins at sundown. So let me just be the first to wish you Shana Tova, which in Hebrew is Happy New Year. Rosh Hashanah, Yom Teruah, we're going to celebrate tonight with a time of worship and a little prophecy update, little mini prophecy update's going to be in there as well, and a time of just joyful shouting and dessert. So come on back if one of those appeal to you at 6.30 tonight. But here's something interesting prophetically. Check this out. The serpent that would go down on its belly and eat the dust, this remains true for the serpent kind through the kingdom. Into the kingdom. I find that interesting because there's all kinds of wonderful changes that are going to take place for animals. Amazing, remarkable things. The wolf and the lion will graze together. Or the wolf and the lamb will graze together. Isaiah 65, 25. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Remarkable changes. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no harm or evil in all my holy mountains. So they're going to be defanged. Another passage even says that the child will play near the cobra's den. So no problem, no threat from the danger noodles. I just want to use that one more time. No danger there, but they will remain dust-looking belly crawlers. Even in the kingdom. It's the one animal that doesn't go through marvelous change. Interesting. So the curse continues with the snake, with the serpent. Sting will be taken, the the bite and the poison will be gone, but they will still eat dust as the curse continues or remains upon them. Which reminds us not to forget how all-encompassing sin really is. How it's... Always there. Now, I do not believe it will be there. Well, especially for those caught up, those who are glorified, those ruling and reigning with Jesus in the kingdom. The curse will not be upon you, but there will still be a remnant of the curse in the world, even as the snake is still slithering in the kingdom. Sin will still be possible. Don't forget that. So the curse continues. Not now with the serpent host, but with the unwelcome guest of that host. Number two, the curse on the devil. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Now, the first part of that verse, we could say, well, that's just, that's, (laughs) that's obviously still a serpent curse because there's enmity between snakes and women. And men, but we don't admit it. Rod Gilmore told me he was out in eastern Washington hunting a couple of weeks back, walking along a a dusty road, and all of a sudden looked down, and there was a rattler right in front of him. 
And he began rattling and, and, you know, reared up and looked at him and he got out of there fast. So clearly there's an enmity between the serpent and Rod. But I will put enmity between you and the woman. You might think, oh, guys, that's, that's the snake. And, and what woman? Any, any of you ladies like snakes? Any willing to? Okay, a couple do. All right, you're willing to admit that. So, bravo. How about your husbands? No, I won't ask. Just... But we could say, oh, that's enmity between the woman and the snake, but it's not. It's far bigger than that because it goes on and between your seed and her seed. And we just move from the serpent to Satan because of the prophetic and supernatural significance of this curse. And in this curse, blessing begins to emerge. Her seed here is Hazara. It means her offspring... Her seed, Zara, the word Zara in the Hebrew has a Greek equivalent word, might sound familiar, sperma. And the English equivalent to Zara would be sperm. I will put enmity between his sper- your sperm talking to the Satan and her sperm. Does that sound a little twisted? Something's wrong there. Something's not right. Something's supernatural. Bible and biology students, remember, women do not produce sperm. They don't produce seeds. They produce eggs. It's men who produce sperm. And yet more than 32 centuries later, God gives a follow-up verse to this very promise, to this very curse with a blessing embedded that there will be her seed. Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will call His name Emmanuel. Her seed implies something supernatural. Something beyond the natural is going to take place. Her seed. Her sperm. There's going to be a sperm in the woman, but it doesn't come from a man. In fact, Jeremiah 31.22 says, How long will you go here and there, O faithless daughter of Israel? For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. You might say, well, that's not a new thing. Every time a woman gives birth to a boy, she has encompassed a man. That's not a new thing. It's a new thing if the man inside the woman doesn't come from another man. It's a new thing if there's something miraculous, supernatural going on here that is a miraculous seed from the Spirit of God. Luke one thirty five. the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel said to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And that miracle happened. And the babe was born in Bethlehem and Christmas is coming. Genealogies, by the way, genealogies in the Bible always follow the Father. Always. Always follows the male lineage. It's not to be a sexist thing. It's just how they did it. It's how it was written. Following the male line with one major and one minor exception. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew does something interesting here. And we'll see also in Luke chapter 3. The two lineages that are given for Jesus Christ. But they're distinct. They're unique. You would think, well, why aren't they exactly the same? Well, one goes one direction, the other one goes the other one. Okay, one begins and goes up to Jesus, and one starts with Jesus and goes backward. So there's a difference. 
And there's some uniqueness in the two genealogies, but they complement each other perfectly. Let me show you why. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then Matthew begins with Abraham and runs all the way down through verse 16 to Jesus. Ultimately, look at verse 16. From Abraham, it runs down to, finally, Jacob, who was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Note that. Interesting. Joseph is called the husband of Mary, not the father of Jesus. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born. Well, see right there. Joseph and Mary, by whom Jesus was born. No, by whom is in the feminine form. So... Jesus was born by Mary, not by Joseph. He's not connected there. Jesus, who is called Messiah. What Matthew does is he traces the legal right, and it is a legal right, of Jesus to rise to the throne of David. Beginning with Abraham, going all the way down through David, through Solomon, to Joseph, Jesus' supposed earthly father. But even as adopted, even as an adopted son... Rather than a biological son, because he's a son of Joseph, he would have legal right to ascend to the throne in Israel. But note a couple of things here in this lineage that are interesting to me. First of all, there are four women listed, and you don't do that. No offense, sisters. But if you're a Hebrew writer, you you don't do that. You list the fathers and their sons. And that's the line. But suddenly, we note in verse 3, there's Tamar. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. By a bizarre story we're going to come up to in a little bit in Genesis, not today. (laughs) But a very strange story of a woman who was dishonored deeply, and yet she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Or down in verse 5, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab? Rahab the harlot. Rahab the harlot. Our own worship leader, Rachel Daly, wanted to be Rahab the harlot for Halloween several years ago. Her parents wouldn't let her. (laughs) And then you have Boaz with the father of Obed by Ruth. So here's now a third woman mentioned in the lineage of Jesus. Sisters, sit up and take notice. And Ruth was a Moabite outsider. She wasn't even part of the deal. But she was faithful to Naomi and she, she, her mother-in-law and she followed her into Israel. And she was then married after her husband had died, married to Boaz and became part of, part of the story. And then in verse 6, Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba. Well, she's got a great story. So you have Tamar and Rahab and and Ruth and Bathsheba all in the lineage of Jesus Christ. These women who are encompassed by men, which I think is really an encouraging thing to notice. But again, you get all the way down to Mary, by whom Jesus was born, by whom in the feminine form. But here's the big problem with Matthew's genealogy. Though it gives the legal right of Jesus to ascend to the throne of Israel... And to be king, legally, it's okay. The problem is spiritually, this line is cursed. No one following a certain point in this lineage can ever rise to the throne. Which is kind of a problem. 
Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24 says, As I live, declares the Lord, even though Coniah or Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I would pull you off. Verse 30, he says, thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Listen, when God gives a curse, it's a curse. It stands. And if you look in the lineage, all the way down to verse 12 of Matthew chapter 1, you see after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, And on down. From verse 12 on, no one of that line could ever rise to sit on the throne of Israel. Thank God Jesus is not technically of that line. He's not. He's by whom he's married, by whom Jesus was born. Not Joseph. So it comes all the way down to Joseph. And were Jesus the son of Joseph biologically, then spiritually speaking, he would be barred from rising to be king of Israel. I'm sure Satan thought that was a great thing. Coniah comes along, there's this curse. Yes, I've blocked the whole thing. Go to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Remember the background of all this. I will put enmity between your seed, Satan, and her seed. Luke chapter 3, verse 23, which begins... I'll give you a chance to find it. I hear the turning. It's music to my soul. Luke 3.23, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, as was supposed, because you know, I know, he wasn't the son of Joseph. And then you have, well, your Bible might say the son of Eli. The problem is the word, the phrase, the son is not there. It's just... As was supposed, son of Joseph, of Eli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, and on down the line goes. And the line is slightly different. In fact, you might note, you get all the way down to verse 31, and you see the son of Natan, the son of David. Whoa, wait a minute. There's a fork in the road of the genealogy. You have David all the way down to Solomon, and that goes one route, and on that line is Jeconiah, whose line is cursed. But David had another son, a son by the name of Nathan, Natan, and down that line we reach all the way to a man named Eli. Guess who Eli was? Mary's dad. So what we have in Luke's genealogy is the hereditary right of Jesus, going all the way back to David, there is a hereditary pattern, genealogy, down to Jesus, and Jesus has the hereditary right through all the sons of David, reaching down to Eli, the father of Mary, and Jesus has the hereditary right to rise up to the throne. Doesn't need the legal right. God bypasses the curse. I love when God bypasses the curse. See, I can sit here this morning and tell you God bypassed the curse in my life. I should be dead. (laughs) Many times over. I should be cursed for all eternity. God bypassed the curse through Jesus, through this same line of David. God's amazing. He's marvelous. The Lord bypassed the curse line for the genealogical lineage down through Mary that can only work if, if the offspring 
is her seed. Her seed. I will put enmity between you and the woman back in Genesis 3.15. Between your seed and her seed. Satan got it, by the way. He heard the curse. Having existed with God prior to the world, this once great cherubim, now knowing that when God speaks, it is, here's this curse, I will put in between your seed and her seed, and he will continue on with the curse, but he recognizes something right there. So what does Satan do? In the very next chapter of Genesis, he begins his campaign to wipe out the seed. As Cain kills Abel. First murder in the Bible. We'll look at that. In Genesis chapter 6, he tries to corrupt the seed of all humanity. We'll read about that. The background to the flood, the lead up to the flood. And then following it through the Hebrew Scriptures, we see the the evil intent, the anti-Semitism, the satanic anti-Semitism of Pharaoh, and then Haman, the infanticide of Herod. All along, Satan trying to kill the seed. Stop the seed. Even to the point where the seed was born. Jesus emerges. He tried to kill all the male children under the age of two. Couldn't get to Jesus. And even after that, what happens? The hometown crowd try to push him off a cliff. Storms rise up, demonically inspired on the Sea of Galilee, to try and upset the boat and drown the seed. We have the plotting religious leaders going after the seed. It doesn't make sense. They had nothing on him. One phone call to the Ukraine. No, I'm sorry, that's a different story. (laughs) They didn't have anything on Jesus, but they plotted and they looked. Is there some way we can trip him up? We can get him. We can call him out and get him killed. Stop the seed. And ultimately, the seed was nailed to the cross. Satan thought he had finally won. Well, he wasn't paying close enough attention. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have a heel bruise. Because to be bruised on the head is to be killed. This seed of woman, Satan, is going to kill you. He will crush you. Literally, the word bruise, yeshup, In Hebrew, it's crush. He will crush you on the head. How do you kill a snake? Crush the head. That is the fatal blow. To cut off its tail, it'll still slither and snap. I got the enmity too, I'm just saying. You crush the snake by a fatal blow to the head. Picture this. It's, It's the serpent biting the heel as it comes down to land the fatal blow. It's going to bite you on the heel. You're going to crush him on the head. And this is the triumphant blessing in the curse. Who would have thought God is cursing Satan and embedded in that and here's the blessing. He's going to crush your head. The blessing is going to come. It's called the Proto-Evangelicum, meaning the first gospel. And it is the summation of the entire gospel right here. Jesus will crush the serpent's head. 
that the leader of the sin campaign will be taken out. Luther says this text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the Scriptures. Right here, Genesis 3.15, in the midst of the curse, comes this blessing. The promise, again, of the seed of woman, Jesus Christ. Bruised on the heel, and he was, as the nails went through his feet. And just as his foot came down to crush the devil at the cross, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery, Being chained up, bound all their lives. There's only one little problem. Is Satan doesn't appear to be crushed in this world yet, does he? He still prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He's still obviously active in this world. He hasn't been crushed. No. But he suffers from a bad migraine. His head is hurting. And the Bible declares that the devil's head will be fully and fatally crushed. Romans 16.20, Paul says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Which is kind of cool because we get to be involved in the stomping. Revelation chapter 20 verse 10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the Bible declares this is the second death. That's it. Done. Crushed. The fatal blow. By the way, your seed. It's interesting. We don't talk a whole lot about your seed as he's talking to Satan. We, we focus on and think about the proto-evangelicum, her seed, and that mention of the first gospel, that her seed, this miraculous birth of Jesus, we like to think about that. What about your seed, the seed of Satan? Well, who's that? Antichrist. The Antichrist. The seed of Satan. But listen. This phrase, her seed is a phrase that is only used in the Proto-Evangelicum, this this verse, and one other place in the entire Bible. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17 says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her... It says children in our translation, but the word children is sperma. Which again, if we were reading that that way, it would kind of freak us out a little bit. The dragon went off to make war with the rest of her sperma? Her seed? Yes, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Here's the marvelous thing. Jesus is the supernatural seed. Jesus is the seed of woman. He's the one talked about here in the curse. He's the blessing behind it all. And when you are aligned with Him, when you're born again, when He comes and fills you and lives within you, guess what? You become part of the seed that crushes the enemy. You are now part And right here at the beginning, mid-curse, God declares this great, inevitable, unstoppable blessing. But there's still more fallout. Ladies, you know. Number three, the curse. And the woman. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children 
Satan promised the woman this fruit will deliver enlightenment and instead the woman was enlightened in her delivery as the Lord multiplied and intensified her pain which by the way implies there was already some degree of pain in childbirth so I'm going to multiply I'm going to take what's there so I don't know what that was like I still don't know what it's like but was it discomfort that the woman would have had in childbirth that then is turned into this excruciating, remarkable pain. A pain so great that at the birth of my firstborn son, we're there in the room. I'm over in the corner, Cheryl's in labor, 14 hours of labor. When Hannah was born, epidural time, it was great. But the first with Corey, 14 hours, and Cheryl's over there, and I'm hungry. Hey, it had been a long, hard night for me. So I went down to the to the hospital, you know, diner, and I picked up for myself just a little orange juice, a little energy, and, and, and a tuna fish sandwich. I'm over in the corner eating my little tuna fish sandwich. Do you have to eat that thing in here? No, dear, no, I'll be out in the hall. Unbelievable. There was already some pain in delivery for Eve, for the woman that is, and yet it would be magnified. Why? Why? Women have been asking this question since the beginning. Why? And when I see the woman, when I see Eve, boy, we're going to have words. (laughs) Thanks a lot, sis, for what you did. Hey, hey, she didn't do it. Oh, she sinned. She deserved the curse. It was God who multiplied the pain, ladies. So, young ladies, when you are giving birth and there is great pain, guess what? That's from the Lord. What? Why? Why this history-long labor for women in childbirth? Well, first of all, all women sin. Can I get an amen from my brothers? Uh, yeah, yeah, the guys are all laughing, but oh no, no, he said it, I didn't say it. All women sin. Let's be honest, so do all men, all people sin, but you've already sinned, you've already brought upon yourself. If you are sinless, you have a right to be upset with Eve. If you have ever sinned, ladies, it's on you. <laughs> you would be there with or without the first woman. But God's the one who did it. Why? Listen, God immediately established a direct connection between sin and pain. And you know what? Every time a woman gives birth, the lesson is learned again. See, we, we forget this. We go about our lives and we just kind of wander through, la, 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 and God is still teaching. He's still getting attention. He's still saying, look, This hurts, doesn't it? Yeah, thanks a lot, Eve. Why? She sinned. Sin. Pain. Don't forget it. Sin causes pain. Always causes pain. And every generation and every birth, God says over and over and over, if we will listen, sin will result in intense pain. Hebrews 12, verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Don't we see that in a birth? 
the pain and the anguish, and then the child is in the mother's arms, and there's the peaceful fruit. You know, a joyful peace. But God is still teaching. Sadly, we've come up with ideas for pain management when it comes to sin. Ways to ameliorate the pain, numb the pain for a time, and the way we do it is we take more sin. So if we add sin upon sin, we can kind of numb the pain, but then the sin increases and the pain increases all the more. And there's more here to the curse, which I believe is a direct causal result of the sin itself. The pain, if we read on in verse 16, I'm going to increase the pain, and here's more pain. Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What a pain! (laughs) We talked about this last week, but let me clarify this. Let's just sharpen the point a little bit. The phrase, your desire, your desire will be for your husband... It is a desire to dominate. How do you know that? Well, the word desire is only used three times in the entire Hebrew Scriptures. Desire is teshakut. And three times, it it can translate hunger, desire. it's It's a deep passion. But it has a very specific focus. Now, it's used one time, the third time, in the Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 10, which says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Now, that desire is not a desire to dominate. That's a sexual desire. And it's speaking specifically of a man's desire for a woman. So no great surprises there. But it doesn't apply in this passage because this is a woman's desire for the man. So could it be that she will sexually desire her husband and he will rule over you? That's not what it's saying. Because desire has another more pointed meaning meaning when applied here. If you look over one chapter over Genesis chapter 4 verse 7, we see the second use of the word desire. When God is talking with Cain and says, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. This is a desire. Sin is a desire for mastery. Sin is a desire to dominate. And as a result of the curse, there is a desire for dominance in a marriage. And it runs both ways. Because the woman now is going to want to dominate the man, but the man is going to rule over the woman. And so we've got all the conflict that we talked about last week. All the issues that have fallen male-female relationships all the way down through history. I want to dominate. I'm going to rule. Well, I'm going to dominate. Well, I'm going to rule. And we see the fallout to this very day. By the way, who was the dominant figure in the sin at the tree? The woman was. The woman was the dominant figure. The man was passive. As we saw Wednesday night, where was Adam through this whole confrontation? He was right there. He was close enough for Eve to take a bite and hand it to him. And he says nothing. He does nothing. Mr. Passive. As the serpent and the woman are in this confrontation, this conversation, he does nothing. She's the one in the midst of all this. She's dominant. Take this, just dear. So she is going to desire the rule of the marriage. He is going to have the rule of the marriage. And unless Jesus comes in and brings peace, there's not a whole lot of hope 
for the marriage. So the woman had the dominance. The man was passive. And the punishment here, it fits the crime. The sin produced the result. But, as I said last week, here's another hidden blessing in all of this that Galatians 3.28 tells us there's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Peace. Oneness, unity that can come no other way but through Jesus. By the way, the behind the scenes blessing even deeper in this is that in a Christ-centered marriage where the wife desires the best for her husband and, and the husband, rather than ruling over her, covers her and loves her and protects her. In that Christ-centered marriage, the relationship of the follower and Jesus is exemplified. Because we are the bride. We all take the position with Jesus of the wife. We're in that position as He is in the position of the one who loves and covers and does everything to save us. The curse of the woman. Number four. The curse of the man. Verse 17. Then to Adam He said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And so we read that and go, Okay, well I just won't. <laughs> Jim, Jim Daly was sharing yesterday I'm not even going to get this right but he was just talking yesterday and, and noticed how often and we all laughed because all the guys at the men's breakfast understood this he said how often you know does your wife say something to you and you have no idea what she said and she asked did you hear what I just said and your answer is I, 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 I. can you repeat the question <laughs> That's not the deal here. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Should I ignore her? Should I dismiss her counsel? Do I refuse her help and support? No. The problem is Adam chose to listen to the woman over the Lord God. Because you listen to her instead of me is implied. You know what Adam did? He made Eve the first goddess. He made her the first idol. He listened to her above and over the commandment, the singular commandment of the Lord. And his idolatry of Eve is what led to his determined disobedience of God. And I say determined because remember, the Bible says the woman was deceived. It does not say the man was deceived. So my assumption is he knew exactly what he was doing. He decided to eat that which he knew he was not supposed to eat. Why? Because he elevated the woman. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Well, wait a minute. Cursed is the ground? Adam got off scot free. (laughs) The ground is cursed, whatever. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's interesting here that the curses surround the man and the woman. They impact the man and the woman. But the only two times the word curse is actually used is on the serpent and on the ground, not on the man or the woman. Does that mean we're not cursed? Mm, No, 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 no. Because sin brings curse. Sin binds and hems in and chains. But it is a remarkable point of mercy that the curse is spoken directly to the man's realm 
and to the one who deceived the woman, while not directly to the man and the woman. You can draw your own conclusions about this, think through it, but I do wonder that God does not desire to curse man, but our own sin does that. So in the spoken word of God, He does not directly curse the man and the woman. But the fallout of all of it and our sin does curse us. Now look at what the curse of the ground does. Cursed is the ground because of you in toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. Toil. The word toil there is the exact same word in the Hebrew as the word pain in verse 16. Ladies, you will have pain in childbirth and in pain you will bring forth children. Men, cursed is the ground because of you and in pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. You will know pain too, bros. Every time a weed stabs your hand, every time a crop is wiped out by drought or storm, every time the sweat pours down the face or the pain flares up in the lower back, every time the ground is unruly and unworkable and untenable for you, remember, this is the payout of sin. Every time we hurt, her pain is in the maternity ward, his pain is in the field. And I hear a little chuckling from my sisters thinking, yeah, well, your pain is still nothing like mine. Okay, whatever. I'm not here to argue the point. I finished my tuna fish sandwich. (laughs) But the point remains the same. Pain is the payout for sin. Pain is the consequence of sin. Pain is bad. We don't want pain. Pain is a warning that something wrong is happening physically in our bodies. The stove is hot. You touch the stove. You get burned. You have pain. Don't touch the stove. So throughout history, God has been saying, sin, pain. Sin, pain. Get that. Understand it. Embrace that. In pain, you will eat. Of it all the days of your life. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it will grow for you. I got them all over the back part of my property. Those thistles, I hate them. They have that beautiful little purple flower. (laughs) Oh, look at that. It's a beautiful purple flower. And then a week later, you've got 27 of them. (laughs) With thorns growing up. You will eat of the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. Last night, we, yesterday afternoon actually, Cheryl and I were out running errands. We came home and she said, okay, I got some projects. And I said, I got two rules today. Just two. It's one more than Adam and Eve had, but I think we can handle it. Two rules. My two rules were, I don't want to lift anything heavy and I don't want to sweat. Yeah. I took Advil last night before I went to bed. And I wiped my brow more than once. So, sweat of your face. You're going to eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. Did you see the other blessing? Right there in verse 18. Thorns. Thorns. Based on my simplistic reading of this, there were no thorns on planet Earth before the curse. (coughs) There were only thorns after the curse. And John 19, verse 2 tells us that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. You think God anticipated 
the thorns would crown Jesus on the way to the cross? Is that what you're saying? Without question. Because Jesus would wear the curse. He would feel. Ladies, pain in childbirth, I'll give it to you. You win over all of us guys with the most excruciating pain. You're a 10 on the 1 to 10 scale. But compared to Jesus at Calvary, you're not even on the same scale. And neither am I. Jesus was bound to the cross by the curses Himself, even wearing the thorns that the great promise would be fulfilled, that the Proto-Evangelicum would come to bear. Isaiah 55, verse 12, You will go out with joy. You will be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. And so the Lord God amazingly, astonishingly, remarkably, and wonderfully embedded blessings right in the midst of the curses. And we know God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Are you called according to His purpose? Is that your life calling? To live by the purposes of God? To to follow after Jesus? To live His way, which is not a way of pain or conflict or toil or difficulty? Are you willing to follow Him? To love Him with your faith firmly embedded in Jesus Christ. Now there's one last verse I want to look at and we'll be done. But it's very strange. Verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all the living. If ever there was a weird place for a verse in the Bible, that's it. Read in the context. Because from the ground you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death in the dust. Now the man called his wife's name Living. (laughs) Chava in the Hebrew. Eve's name was Chava. I wish we would just leave it. You know, we always have to change it into our language. Because I like the name Chava. That's a cool little name. Chava, which means life. But it follows this dust-to-dust declaration of death, and it's the strangest place in the world for Adam to say, hey, I think I'll call you life. She's been Isha until now. But he names her life. Why here? Why now? And the answer is very simply, faith. Faith. What do you mean? Faith that they were going to live on. Faith. That even after the curses, you know what he recognized? You know what the blessing is in the curse that Adam would recognize right away? The fact that by the sweat of his faith, he was going to eat bread. What does that tell Adam? You're not going to die today. There's already grace. You're going to live further. You're going to die. Death has begun. Decay has entered the world. Corruption is here. But you're going to eat bread. You'll do it by the sweat of your brow. You're going to do it in toil and pain and labor. He also heard very clearly that the woman's going to have childbirth. We're going to live? You said we would die and 
All these curses come down and suddenly we realize we're going to live. We're going to live. Adam had faith they would live on. So named his wife, live. Hava. And they would be fruitful and multiply. And they would continue on and they would live at least for a time. And let me just read this to you. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Moses said to the people, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live you and your descendants by loving the Lord, your God, by obeying his voice and by holding fast to him. For this is your life. This is your life, Hava. This is your life, Eve, Adam. And Adam, after these curses, hearing these curses, chose to live by faith. But it's more than that he just chose to live on, to believe God was going to let them live further. He names her Eve, Hava, life, out of faith that the seed would come. Adam believed He heard the Proto-Evangelicum. And I believe, he believed, and she believed, and I can prove it to you. In fact, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. You know what that literally, I'm going to go ahead and share this right now. We'll talk about this Wednesday night. But what she actually says, literally, in the Hebrew, I have gotten a man-child, the Lord. Eve apparently believed that her seed, that this miraculous birth, was Cain, rather than Christ. (laughs) She figured, I'm pregnant. Woo! Hey! The seed! My seed! This is it! This is the blessing! This is the promise! Well, it wasn't the promise. Cain... How many women have said, oh, the little blessing, only to have a little cane running around the house? Anyway, we'll come back to that. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John eleven twenty five. John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. What life? Hava, the life. I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So even in the curses, Adam believed God for the blessings. Close your Bibles for a moment. And just listen up. This is the key to our lives. This is it. The blessings in the curses. To believe God for blessing is not blind belief. You know what Adam's faith was? Adam's faith wasn't in, you know, esoteric nonsense. Adam's faith wasn't, boy, hopefully this all works out. No, Adam's faith was in God's Word. He believed what God said. Why would Adam believe what God said? Because Adam knew who God was. If God says it, he's going to do it. Because he's faithful. And he cannot not be faithful. God must be faithful to His Word. So how do we not get all tied up in knots because of the curses in our lives? And the answer is faith. Faith. And we've been over this again and again, and I think probably because I'm trying to get it into the center of my heart. Faith is trusting God for who He is. 
that I believe what this says about who he is. And because I know who he is, I look at what he says and I say, it's got to happen. He's going to do it. Why? Because he said it. Because he said it. I believe it. That's faith. So how do we deal with the curses of life? Faith. How do we deal when it gets really tough? Faith. How do we know it's all going to ultimately work out even when life is horrendous? Faith. The same faith that Adam and Hava had early on. Faith. That Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Faith. That's how you see the blessing even in the curses. And Father, this morning we ask for that kind of faith. It's not an intellectual faith, Lord. It's not a highly learned faith. It is the faith of a child that chooses to see what You have promised in spite of all that we have done for curse. And I pray for us all this morning, Lord. Once again, I find myself, as I do week after week after week, not having a clue where my brothers or sisters are at spiritually, where everybody is at this morning, heart and mind, but You know exactly where we are. And I pray, Father, that You will peel back the darkness of the curses that we might note the glory of the blessings this morning. That we might recognize that even as You had to curse sin, You still provided a way for the curse to be broken. And that blows me away, Father. And it wells up in my heart the the deepest gratitude and eternal thanksgiving. I thank You so much. And Father, this morning I pray for every one of us here that You would open our hearts for blessing. The blessing that comes of repentance and confession and receiving You as Lord and Savior. Lord, if there's anyone among us, and and I'm speaking to the Lord, but I'm also speaking to all of you. If there's anyone here who has never received Jesus Christ as Lord, I invite you, I challenge you to receive Him today. To stop living under curse and start living under the blessing of God. And if you want to receive Him, you can just pray with me right now from where you're seated. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner, I am cursed, and I need You. Lord, forgive me of my sin. I turn to You. There is no one else to turn to. And I'm asking You to bring me into Your presence. To free me from the curses. To call me your own and to fill my heart with faith. I believe that you took those thorns. I believe that you died on the cross and I believe that you rose from the dead. And I state this belief this morning, Lord, asking you now to fill my heart with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.